over the summer, we've been journeying through the parables, kind of looking at some of the, the, the things, the lessons that Jesus taught. And we've covered quite a bit. We have a, a couple more weeks. We're fighting the power. School says summer's done. We're saying, no, we've got two more weeks. Goes through Labor Day. So we've got two more, two more Sundays of this, this sermon series. Um, and we've covered quite a bit as we, we've looked at Jesus' parables. This morning we'll be in Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. It's a parable that, that Jesus uh, taught, and, and it's about acting on his teaching. Acting on what, what Jesus said. Uh, if you have your Bible, you're welcome to turn there. Matthew 7, 24 through 29. The words will also be up on the screens. And as we turn to God's word, will you please join me in prayer? Loving God, your word is a gift. As we seek to live as you would have us live, may it be the very thing that we look to most as a guide. We ask this morning that you give us ears to hear what you have for us. And I ask that you would take my words and use them for your kingdom. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, more often than not, when you hear a sermon, what does a preacher start with? This is the response of time. What does a preacher start with? Prayer, scripture. <laughs> Good, reformed prayer and scripture, yes. Um, what else? A what? A joke. A joke. Sometimes a bad joke or a good joke. Sometimes a story. Sometimes an illustration. Something to kind of draw those who are listening in and to track with, with where the message is going. You know, something to kind of say, oh, this is, this is what is going to happen. It will kind of connect it. So, so usually we, we start with some sort of illustration. We start with some sort of story. We're good. We start with God's word first. You're right with that. Thank you. And, and, and prayer. And then we, we move into the kind of content and then kind of wrap it up with an illustration. If you're a good Presbyterian, there's three points. And that you wrap up with, with what you should do with what God's word says. But when Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, he does something very different. He starts with the benediction. The benediction, another word for that is blessing. He starts with the Beatitudes. He starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. He starts with where many of our contemporary, if you go to a, a preaching class, they're going to say, don't start with the end. But that's what Jesus does. He starts with the benediction. Then he gets into the instruction. Here's how we should live. Here's how we should interact with one another. Here's how you should live in your personal life. Here's how you should live in, in your corporate life together. And then he concludes. He concludes the Sermon on the Mount a very different way with his illustration. It's, it's almost a backward sermon in, in some sort. I'm looking forward to unpacking the Sermon on the Mount together at some point in the near future. But he ends with a story. He ends with the parable. And starting in verse 24, we read this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on a rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the floods came, the, the winds blew, and they beat against the house. 
and it fell, and it was a great fall. Now, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now I'm going to do the thing that most preachers do when they preach. I'm going to tell a little bit of a story, not a, not a joke. Uh, my sister and I have always been close. She's three years older than me. Growing up, she was always the overprotective sister. She, she always, you know, if my parents came to discipline me, she, she would actually stand in and, and kind of say, whoa, 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 hold on. Sometimes she'd take the fall for me. She was a very overprotective and gracious uh, big sister. And I was little brother. How many of you are little brothers? Any, any of you? So, so you kind of know what I'm, I'm getting at. How many of you have a little brother? So you also know what I'm going to get at. Little brothers know how to push buttons. That's what we do. We, we, we push buttons. We, we joke. We, we push. We push. We push. We annoy. And over the years into adulthood... My sister and I have definitely grown closer, but I've come to accept that I'll never fully shake the title little brother. I think there's just something innate in us where we are hardwired to poke and to prod at our, our older siblings. To this, this day, one of the, those areas where I'm kind of always nagging at my sister, or maybe not nagging is the right word, but, but poking at my sister is around her lack of sense of direction. Uh, the GPS was, was the best invention for her when she got it in, in her car. So it all, it all started with, uh, with a few months after she got her driver's license. She, um, she got her license. It took her three or four times, another thing that I, that I poked from, to pass the driver's test. I got it my first time. So this is something I remind her of. Um, so, so a few months after she got her driver's license, our family was having dinner at a, at a friend's house. And she was excited to drive and meet us on her own after she had spent some time with, with her friends. She had to drive south and east. We, we, were, we lived in San Diego. She had to drive south and east from where she was to get to where we were having dinner as, as a family. And after about an hour of when she was supposed to meet us had passed, we, we knew something was up. I, I could see that my parents started getting a little, a little nervous as she hadn't shown, shown up yet, and then the phone rang. She was calling in, in, in tears. She was calling from a payphone. Remember what those were? She was calling from a, a payphone outside of a 7-Eleven that was at the last exit before you cross into Mexico. She, she had completely missed multiple exits for where she could have turned around and, and gotten by, by a good 40 miles, went, went beyond where she was supposed to be. So today, if she ever gets lost, I'll just simply say, hey, at least you're not in Mexico. As my sister drove fur, farther and farther south, she, she had all these multiple opportunities to stop, to turn around, to start going in the right direction. There are all kinds of signs. But she was 17 years old. She was still learning to drive, learning how to navigate the roads, learning to pay attention to the signs along the way. In the book of Matthew, we have a, a picture painted of Jesus where he is constantly giving his followers, his first disciples, and in turn, really us, reminders of, hey, hey, here's how you live. 
Don't miss this offering. Don't keep going. Whoa, 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 stop. Turn around. Don't keep going. He's constantly reminding us how to live. How to live. How to, to live out our faith in, in, in the world in which we find ourselves. Sometimes they get it and, and sometimes they, they, they don't. Before they would, would start heading in the wrong direction for too long, though, he, he'd kind of pull them back. He'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa. Stop, stop for a moment and give them a warning. And say, remember what I said. Here's how you act on what I said. The single longest portion of, of uninterrupted teaching that we have in the Gospels is, is the Sermon on the Mount. And at some point in the future, again, we're going to unpack that, that whole sermon with one another. Um, throughout the narrative of Scripture, there, there's a lot of important events that take place on a mountain. Can you think of any of them? This is acquired, this question. Can you think of significant events that happen on mountains? Everybody at once. Transfiguration is one. Yeah. Congregation, now it's your turn. Things that happen on, the, on mountains are important. Moses. Moses on the mountain. Choir, your turn again. What? The offering of Isaac. That was very, very good. Yeah. Yeah. A- a- any other? Any other? Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on, on Mount Carmel. Mountains are kind of important in, in, in Scripture. The Mount of Olives, which sits right outside the walls of Jerusalem and kind of served as a home base for, for Jesus and his disciples before they would, would enter into the city where, where, they, where Jesus stopped to weep over the city before they, they entered, where he reportedly ascended after the resurrection. Now, growing up, for whatever reason, when, when I'd go to Sunday school and we'd have the flannel graphs and, and all those things, I would picture, I would picture these, these giant mountains, something out of like Lord of the Rings. You know, these, these, these giant, giant mountains when I, when I would picture these mountains. And some of them, like, like Mount Carmel, really are giant mountains. But others are more like hills. And the place where where the, the Sermon on the Mount took place is more like a, a, a bluff, I would say, that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. Today, on, on the top of the hill, there sits a church called, appropriately, the Church of Beatitudes. Um, it's a beautiful place, incredible views, and, and there's this path that kind of curves around the church. And uh, as you walk, there's different plaques with with the Beatitudes and you're invited or encouraged to stop and to pray and to, to read them and then kind of continue their way, your way. But a few hundred yards down from the hill, down from where the, the church sits, is, a, is another site. And, and it's a little different. This one has far fewer visitors, far less fanfare. There's a chain link fence around it, and that's, that's it. It's the ruins of what most think is a, a Byzantine church from the 4th century um, and it's where that church believed that Jesus actually gave the Sermon on, on the Mount. But we can't actually know the exact spot on the hill where, where, where Jesus gave this, this sermon. But I do think it's important that we understand the location within the context of, of how and where Jesus' ministry took, took place. It, it would have been a, a reference point, if you will, uh, as they, they journeyed. Along the Sea of Galilee, you can see from the Sea of Galilee, from the shores, you can, you can point to, to this, this hill and say, hey, look, look, that, that's the place. That's, that's the place that, that 
that Jesus taught. So I imagine years after Jesus gave the sermon, some of his earliest, earliest followers would, would walk by, maybe on their way from Capernaum to Tiberias or, or all the way to, to Nazareth. And they'd point to the hill and they'd say, hey, you remember when Jesus preached that really long sermon? Remember, it was, it was, in, that, it was in that place. That was the place where he, he kind of called us out and said, we actually have to do what he said. It, it, was, it was big enough that it would have been that kind of marker for, for earliest followers. Jesus' call to action comes at the end of his message through an illustration about two builders. One who builds on a rock and the other who builds on, a sand, on sand. Both builders, they, they faced inevitable challenges. Rain. Flooding. Wind. One house endures, the other house crumples. For the people who lived in, in the area where, where Jesus preached this message, right along the coast of the Sea of Galilee, this parable would have been abundantly clear. They lived through storms. They would have seen houses with sand elements. They would have seen others crumble. They, they would have known what it was like to lose fishing boats, their, their livelihood, to unexpected changes in weather. And they would have known who was prepared and, and, and who wasn't prepared. Uh, about two years ago, or actually right before I, I started here at WPC, I was on a retreat with our denomination uh, just over an hour outside of New Orleans uh, with a group of, of pastors from our denomination. And I'll never forget the drive from the airport to the retreat center. Our driver, we were in a van, and it was, I mean, seven pastors in a van. Sounds like a lot of fun, right? So we were in a van together, and this poor driver didn't really know who he was picking up. Um, and he picks us up, and he starts driving out to where, where the retreat center is. And uh, he gives us a very, very quick history of the city. And then just as we begin crossing over a long, long bridge over, over a lake, I'm forgetting the name of the lake, he started talking about Hurricane Katrina. He referred to communities that still hadn't been built, rebuilt. He talked about the reality that, that very few people were actually prepared for what came. And he made a comment about how, how city officials had an idea of what might happen if a big hurricane hit, but that there was no action that was taken to prepare them for it. It was kind of a quiet ride from there on out. We just kind of sat there and said, huh, what, what, do, we, what, do, we, what do we do with this? It was over 10 years after the hurricane, and there was still pain and still plenty of work to be done. I have to imagine folks who, who live in that area in Louisiana hear a parable like this one a little differently than you and I do. Just like we would hear a story about wildfire differently than those who haven't lived through a wildfire. This warning would have, would have hit home for them very quickly. Storms are inevitable. Jesus' first followers were, were going to experience difficulty. Jesus wanted to let them know that. And we are going to experience difficulties. The question, the question is whether or not we've built a firm foundation, which, according to Jesus, is done by acting on his teaching, acting on his word. 
Obedience to Jesus isn't so much protection from trouble as much as it's protection when we are in trouble. It's a warning to be prepared as much as it's a promise that we will endure through difficulty. And I think there's a subtle story within the story here that we we sometimes miss. Um, What does Jesus say is the evidence that the house is built on a rock? What's the evidence that the house is built on a rock? Not not a trick question. That, That it does what? It survives. It, it, it survives. It's still standing. Notice that it doesn't say that Jesus doesn't say the house miraculously grows. He, he doesn't say that it in some way becomes more impressive. No, it just it just survives. It just survives. The rock under the house doesn't shield it from the storm. It just keeps it from crumpling. This morning, there are, there are folks in, in our sanctuary who are going through all kinds of challenges, all kinds of difficulties and hardships. Some of us want to talk about them, and others of us don't want to talk about them. And that, that is okay, but I do think it's important that we all acknowledge that they exist, that there are challenges that we all face to some degree. Maybe there's a, a difficult decision you have to make or, or a challenging situation at work or, or something going on with your family or, or your health. And the story within the story for us here is that even when we stand on the firm foundation of Jesus' word, taking to heart what we read in the gospel, doing our best to love God and love neighbors, striving to follow what Jesus taught us in everything we do, There are seasons where, if we're honest, simply surviving is all we can do. Now, I fully believe that God longs for all of us, all of his children, to thrive, to live full and abundant lives. Scripture reminds us of that over and over again. But sometimes, sometimes, let's be honest, just getting by, surviving, in the midst of all the junk that life throws our way? Sometimes that's hard. And I would suggest that it's evidence that God is in our midst, just surviving through the difficulties. It's why we stand on Scripture. It's why we lean on one another as a church community. And it's why, no matter what, we need to seek in a way, seek to live in a way that lines up with what Jesus taught. So when Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew writes that the crowds were astonished, that they're amazed by his teaching. They're amazed that he taught with somebody or as somebody with authority, not like their scribes, which was not like their the religious leaders of the day. Now, it's interesting for Matthew. It's almost as if the most important part of the sermon isn't the content of the sermon, but the person who is giving the sermon. For Matthew, it's almost as if the the most important part of this message isn't the content of the message. It is who is giving the message. It's not what Jesus said. It's also what he did. How he he modeled his actions. What what he did with his life. So throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus' preaching and teaching is followed by one action or another. he, He teaches and then he goes and does something. 
If you read Matthew from start to finish, you'll see a a familiar phrase repeated over and over. And it's, it's something along the lines of when Jesus had finished teaching, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he went off and did X, Y, and Z. Now, each time we see that line, it's a, a reminder, a reminder to, to kind of maybe turn around, to say, oh, to check ourselves, say, are we going on the right path? Are we acting out what Jesus taught us to live? He'd go from teaching the disciples in a small group to preaching to the masses, from telling parables to, to groups to healing individuals, from giving prophetic messages in the temple to preparing for the crucifixion. It's always words and action tied together. That is why he taught with authority. He walked the talk. Words paired with action. After the Sermon on the Mount, he healed a man with leprosy and then heals a centurion's son. He walked the talk. It's a pattern if you read through Matthew. It happens over and over and over again. Now, as as followers of Christ, it's essential for us to study God's Word. We have to take it seriously. Looking into historical context, connecting dots between uh, different parts of, of the story along the way, but we can't stop there. So on Sunday morning... When we gather here and, and we open our Bibles together in your personal devotion time, when you sit down and you, you open your Bible on your own or when you're unpacking Scripture together in a small group, wherever and whenever you read Scripture, and I encourage us all to be reading Scripture consistently. But when we read Scripture, it can't stop there. It can't stop there. We have to be a people of action. The time we spend in God's Word prepares us to survive the inevitable storms. And it also gives us the tools to live out our faith in the different spheres we find ourselves in. We're not called just to think about God's Word. We're called to build our lives around it. Let's pray. Gracious God, we we do thank you for the gift of your Word. God, may our our time together as a church community on Sunday mornings and and our times together throughout the week be refreshing, encouraging, and fulfilling. But more than anything, may they be times where we connect with you so that we can live out what we claim to believe. We pray these things in your name. Amen.